This is Telehealth Unmuted, a podcast developed by Heartland Telehealth Resource Center. HTRC is one of 14 federally designated telehealth resource centers in the country, serving the states of Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. We know there's a huge need for up-to-date telehealth-related information, from billing and reimbursement to psychology and online therapy. So we're bringing subject matter experts and their insights right to you. I'm your host, Kara Lawler, Director of Health Communication Research Center, and this is Telehealth Unmuted. Dr. Lori Teller is a veterinarian who graduated from Texas A&M University's College of Veterinary Medicine and is a board-certified diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in Canine and Feline Practice. She worked in private practice for many years before returning to Texas A&M, where she is a clinical professor and oversees their veterinary telehealth program and educates veterinary students in first opinion practice. She worked in private practice for many years before returning to Texas A&M, where she is a clinical professor and oversees their veterinary telehealth program and educates veterinary students in first opinion practice. She has held leadership positions at the local, state, and national level and is currently the immediate past president of the American Veterinary Medical Association. Dr. Teller also has a monthly radio spot discussing the care of dogs and cats. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Teller. We are so excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. We're excited too. And, you know, you have an incredibly impressive background. And I always like to start the show by asking, how did you get here? Why did you choose to pursue this career? I know there's probably a story there. Oh, yes. Uh, So I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian at the age of six. And about the time I turned 12, my dad said, you know, it's not just playing with puppies and kittens. You probably really need to have an understanding what veterinarians do. Uh, So we went to visit our family veterinarian and he told me I could hang out in the summers um, and just shadow. And so I did that. That's obviously before insurance and our our current legal um, liabilities existed. And then when I turned 16, I got a job. after school and over breaks and things like that. And I went back and worked at that practice. Uh, Once I graduated from veterinary school, I loved being in private practice. I did that for a really, really long time. And then I was recruited to join the faculty at Texas A&M's veterinary school. And telemedicine uh, is a big passion of mine. So that's about half of my job. And the other half is educating our future colleagues. Um, So it's really the best of both worlds. Great segue to um, our conversation today. I think the first question when we think about veterinarian care is how does it differ from human medical care in, you know, its organizational structure? There are huge and significant differences in how veterinary care is organized versus human health care. Uh, and both my father and my husband are physicians, so I, I live this every day. Um, human healthcare tends to be organized around systems. So even if there are doctor's offices and clinics and what have you, 
almost all doctors are somehow affiliated or associated with a larger hospital or hospital system. And so there is ready access to make referrals, um, easy to get consults, those kinds of things. Records can be shared fairly seamlessly, labs, all of that. Um, it also does lead to some fragmentation on the human healthcare side. Uh, the veterinary side, we don't have those kind of systems. Practices tend to operate in their own little bubble, and that can be independent practices, or uh, we do have large corporate ownership of practices. But again, each of those practices tend to operate as their own business. And so we don't have a major referral center to send our patients to. Um, we do, of course, in our local communities, build relationships with specialty centers and emergency clinics and those kinds of things. Uh, but medical records are, are not part of one big system. And of course, how we get paid is completely different. Human doctors have insurance and Medicare and Medicaid and other third-party payers. That's really still pretty rare in the veterinary side. Um, there is an increasing penetration of insurance for pets, but it's still pretty low. And of course, we don't have government-backed payment at all. So <clears throat> potentially dumb question because I don't have a pet. Um, do Is insurance... So there's no insurance. Do they just pay out of pocket for? If you don't have pet insurance, which is the case for most people, then yes, you, you pay out of pocket. So for most people, that's coming from your discretionary income. That's fascinating. I don't know how I didn't know that, but that is an important factor when we think about healthcare for um, you know, animals. And so I have so many questions on this topic. This is the first time we've gotten to have a veterinarian on the show. So it's really exciting and um, hoping to get through, you know, all the burning questions that people might have um, sure. that I certainly have. My next question is, how does the relationship between a veterinarian and a patient differ from that of a human patient and a doctor? And this again is, is pretty significant. Um, when it's a veterinarian and a patient, there's also the third party, which is the client or the owner of that animal. So it tends to be a three-way relationship because it's the veterinarian, the animal owner, and the animal. And so we have to weigh all of that. What are what are the owner's needs? What are and what are the animal's needs? And most of the time, those are all in alignment. Um, we see, of course, the, the animal is presented to us because that person really cares about what is going on with, with their animal. And so we do our exams and we make our recommendations and generally the, the clients are in agreement. And so we can go on with either further testing or whatever our, our treatment recommendations are. Um, but sometimes those aren't in alignment. And um, then it becomes very tricky when we have to weigh what is best for the pet, but may not be what the client wants, or the client may want lots of things and that may be unrealistic for the pet. Um, so that can get very complicated. And on the human side, it's the doctor and the patient. And so um, there's not that third party. And again, 
Um, usually the doctor and patient are in alignment and um, there, there's not that third body that you have to worry about um, in the decision-making process. As a veterinarian that's been in this practice for a while, um, are there any strategies or techniques that you've adopted when there is a case where you're not in alignment with the uh, animal owner? Um, you know, how do you how do you work through that in those situations? A lot of it comes down to communication and education, um, explaining why we are, are making the recommendations that we are, because um, at the end of the day, everybody wants to do the right thing for the pet um, or the animal. And it's important for, sometimes the owner may just need more information. And so trying to, to meet the owner where they are and providing that information, um, this can become particularly tricky when we're talking end of life decisions um, and the owner may not grasp um, the breadth of an animal's problems. And so sometimes it's just explaining, giving them more information and explaining what's going on. And if they need a little more time, things like that, then of course there are things that we can do to keep that animal comfortable um, till they have time to come to grips with that. Um, and it, of course, in extremely rare instances, we may suggest that they seek veterinary care somewhere else where they can find somebody who um, may be more in alignment with what they are looking for. But in general, I have found that if you can communicate and be empathetic and provide the information that they need, then we all end up on the same page and doing what is best for that animal. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And I think, you know, in the in the same way that human-centered healthcare requires really solid communication between the provider and the patient. I think, you know, that is transferable here, even though it is more of a Agreed. triangle. Yes. Um, you mentioned end-of-life care. I can imagine that's probably one of the harder things that you have to do in your position and, and navigate. I, I just wanted to mention that I don't necessarily have a question there, but I can imagine, I can imagine that's very difficult. So end of life care and of course, euthanasia um, can be challenging, but I will say when it's appropriate, it, it really, it, it's sad, but um, it it's also such a rewarding part of our job to be in a relationship where we have truly been with this animal owner and this pet throughout its life. And truly, we're, we're one of the few professions that that is still birth to death. And um, so to be a part of that relationship and, um, and be able to be there with the owner and the pet and humanely let it go, um, really, I mean, it, it's sad, it can be heartbreaking, but it's also a very special feeling knowing that we could be there to provide that comfort and let that pet go peacefully as well. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. And I didn't, I didn't think about that, but you're right. It is one of those professions where you get to be there through the lifespan. Um, I'm sure that's really cool. Uh, to watch, you know, the evolution because, you know, you're watching the evolution of the patient, the, the um, animal themselves, but you're also 
you know, getting to know the owner and establishing that relationship over time. This is very interesting. Um, I have to say it's been awesome. I've gotten not only to see the the pet through its lifespan, but I've gotten to watch children grow up and graduate from school and get married and come back to see me with their own pets and their own kids. And I mean, such a heartwarming feeling to do that. That gives, I, I uh, have chills. I think that's beautiful. Um, I'm curious, do, this is also potentially a dumb question, but I think people probably want to know this as well. Do the pets like do the pets recognize you? Like when they come into the office, do you, when you greet them, like, do you give them treats? Like, how does that process work when you're greeting an animal for their appointment? Oh, yes. They totally recognize us. Uh, most of them are very excited. And of course, we do give them treats. And, you know, if it's a cat, we'll scratch under their chin or around their tail and dogs like belly rubs and ear scratches and all of those kinds of things. Um, so yes, uh, lots of fun when they're happy to come see us. Of course, we have the few, um, just like some of us humans who are less than thrilled to be at the doctor, and they may be a little bit more reserved. Um, the great thing about animals is that they're honest. So if they're happy to be there, they let you know it. And if they're not happy to be there, they let you know that as well. <laughs> that is so true. And in the cases where they're not happy to be there, um, or maybe are, you know, being a little bit more challenging to get into um, the, the doctor's office. What what exactly do you, what do y'all have to do in those cases? How do you calm them down or establish that trust? So that would be better life through chemicals. Um, so it, obviously each situation depends on what's going on. If the animal is there for something that's more urgent, um, we we have ways of giving injectable sedation and uh, we do what's called fear-free handling. So using treats, letting the animal approach you, those kinds of things. Uh, let's say the animal is there just for a wellness check. Maybe they're due for their vaccine and just their annual exam. If they're super nervous and really um, maybe trying to injure somebody, we will reschedule that appointment if it's possible. And then we can send home medications for the owner to give before the next appointment. And that works a lot of times. And then again, taking things in a low stress way to handle using treats, going slowly. Um, so most of the time we can make it work one way or the other. I think it's really interesting how there are common feelings that both animals and humans share when it comes to doctor's visits. I mean, or the dentist, right? I mean, uh, I certainly <laughs> as a child did not like going to either. And I just think it's fun that we have that in common. It, it's very, um, it's just, it's just funny to hear about. Um, okay. So we have so I have so many questions. I wanted to pivot a little bit. How does public health education for pets differ uh, from public health education for humans? So like kind of still on that same wavelength. Sure. So education for human healthcare, of course, is is vast. Um, a lot of it, of course, is covered by government agencies. 
so, you know, we can think of COVID as the perfect example, um, except that it was extremely confusing. Uh, but in general, there's government agencies at all levels from local to, to federal um, talking about things like that, particularly things that may be contagious. Um, but then there's all sorts of nutrition advice that you have access to, chronic disease management. Um, interestingly, in the U.S., there's also infomercials, I guess we could call them, by some of the, the drug manufacturers. And in some cases, those can be educational with an obvious bias, but still exist. Um, so there's a lot going on in the public health space for humans. On the veterinary side, it's significantly limited. Um, typically, the government will only get involved if whatever is impacting animal health has the chance of either impacting public health, human health, or if it could be devastating to the animal and agriculture industry. So particularly if it's um, a, a problem that could affect poultry. And we, we have had avian influenza outbreaks over the past few years that have devastated some of the, the poultry flocks. And of course, that was a big deal before Thanksgiving last year and concerns about having a turkey on your Thanksgiving table. Um, but overall, general preventive care, you know, your, your pet should get an exam, it should get its vaccines, it should be on heartworm or flea or tick prevention. Um, those tend to be much more local. Social media can help with some of that. Um, some of our volunteer organizations help get the word out as well. Uh, but we, of course, don't have the power of some of the, the national and international organizations. Yeah, I'm curious, is there an equivalent, you know, like we have like the CDC, for example, is there an equivalent entity for um, veterinary care? So the CDC actually does a lot um, regarding animal health, and you can go to their website. Um, tremendous information on rabies, of course, because wow. that, that's the disease. Um, but they also, uh, during COVID, provided a fair amount of information about animals in COVID. Um, the FDA also has the Center for Veterinary Medicine. So they have a whole part of the FDA just dedicated to animal health. Um, the DEA has a small amount. And then, of course, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, also does a fair amount. And particularly unique to the, the veterinary space, it's the USDA that oversees our vaccines, whether for human, human vaccines and human medications are all FDA oversight. But for veterinary medicine, our, our drugs are overseen by the FDA, but our vaccines are overseen by the USDA. And then, of course, we also have flea and tick preventions and those kinds of things, and those are overseen by the EPA. So um, it, it does lead to some fragmentation in, in what is shared with the general public. What are the current trending issues within the world of veterinary care? So our, probably our biggest issue is access to care. And I know that's also a big issue on the human side, particularly rural areas, um, for the same reason that doctors and nurses and other human healthcare providers um, have been leaving rural areas. We also have that issue on the veterinary side. And so that is one of our biggest challenges is how do we make sure people 
either in rural communities or people who may not have the financial wherewithal to get regular veterinary care? How do we make sure that those groups um, do receive the veterinary care that they need? And so that's probably our biggest challenge. And um, there's a lot around telemedicine as well, um, around when it should and can be used uh, versus times that it's really not appropriate. Yeah. Um, and and speaking of telehealth and telemedicine, you know, we we are a telehealth-centered podcast. And one of the things that we were very interested in talking to you about is the applications that you've had of telehealth um, in your veterinarian practice. And so first question, how does technology impact veterinary care and practice? So technology is a big part of what we do, um, not just telemedicine, though that that is certainly integral, but artificial intelligence is, is playing a role, all of those things. Um, and just like a lot of other things that we have in our practices, whether it's ultrasound and lab equipment, all those, telemedicine, telehealth, they're a tool that we can use um, to help provide care to our patients. And we use it a lot in our practice. Um, we can do a tremendous amount with follow-up exams, particularly post-op surgery. Of course, dogs and cats get spayed and neutered. That's a very common procedure for us. And instead of then having to bring your pet back 10 days later for us to make sure the incision is healing okay and and do any kind of follow-up that we may need to do, we can very easily do that through telemedicine. Um, but we can do that with some other issues too, um, skin disease, ear infection, ear infections. And one of our biggest uses, for two big uses really for it, um, behavior. So animals that have behavior issues, um, if we've ruled out underlying physical reasons for that, we can do almost all of that via telemedicine. And then chronic disease management. Um, and this, we can use both in urban areas and in rural areas where it may be a three hour drive for somebody to, to bring their pet back. Um, so whenever we can use telemedicine in between those in-person visits, whether it's a diabetic cat or a, an elderly Labrador who has osteoarthritis, those kinds of things, telemedicine's really made a big difference. That's a wide variety of conditions and issues that you're able to treat via telehealth. I'm really surprised by the depth and breadth of that. Um, one that really stuck out to me that I wanted to follow up about is the behavioral issues. So when you are treating a an animal that is having behavioral issues, how how do you go about it in a telehealth setting? Like how would the owner navigate that? I'm I'm just trying to visualize like how an appointment would go. Okay, sure. So let's take a common problem, which would be a cat who has inappropriate urination, meaning it is no longer using its litter box. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to see that cat and make sure, do a physical exam, make sure it doesn't have underlying kidney disease, a urinary tract infection, those kinds of things. And if we've ruled all of that out, then we may want to start with a telemedicine visit to see the environment that the cat lives in, because a lot of times it can be that there are not enough litter boxes in the house or the litter boxes are located in a area that the cat does not like. And so we'll see this commonly people 
which I completely understand, want to put their litter box in a utility room and makes sense, easy to clean, out of the way. Um, but if the cat goes in to use the litter box right when the washer hits its spin cycle or the dryer kicks on, it freaks the cat out and the cat does not want to go back to that location. Um, so we can get a sense of the environment um, and how often the litter box is cleaned and all of those things. And once we know what is going on, then we can make our treatment recommendations. So some of those will be environmental, such as moving the litter box away from the washer dryer. Um, and some of those can be medication. And so then we'll, we'll go through that. And our follow-ups in general can then be done via telemedicine. So we can check in with the owner, find out how the cat is doing, um, reevaluate the environment, see if we need to adjust drug doses, all of those kinds of things. Um, so that's an, that's one example. Um, sometimes we can use it if there's, if you have more than one animal and there's aggression between the animals in the household, they're not getting along. So we can do a lot with behavior modification as well through telemedicine. That makes so much sense. Um, and, you know, as you were, as you were, um, explaining that example, I, it makes sense to me why environment plays a role in all of these things, um, in the same way that it does for human beings, you know, um, and I, the example of the washer dryer, the utility room, like I would never think of that, but of course that makes sense. Right. And I think, um, and I'm assuming, let me know if I'm wrong, but you know, it sounds like a lot of these conversations are just discovery of like, oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about how this would be impacting my pet um, and then making those modifications and then having having success outcomes. Yes, um, very much so. We'll also see it. Um, so people who don't have more traditional pets, like people who have reptiles or birds or things like that, a lot of the issues that we deal with with the, with those patients is also environmental, so nutritional, housing. And of course, we still want to do a physical exam. And so we see them. A lot of times owners are like, well, I don't remember what kind of food I use, or we can't see where they've located the heat lamp or the water source. And so then we can use telemedicine as well to follow up and be able to make recommendations there too. I realize I didn't ask this at the beginning. I always assume veterinary care is like dogs and cats, but it mm -hmm. sounds like you treat <laughs> other animals too. What, what, how many animals do you treat? Like, what are the main? <laughs> so personally, I treat dogs and cats, um, but I work with colleagues who do treat the more exotic pets. So reptiles amphibians, birds, small mammals, rabbits, hamsters, ferrets, those kinds of things. Uh, but I also have colleagues that work on, on cows and horses and goats and sheep. And of course, it's becoming increasingly common for people to now have backyard chickens. And so those of us that started out treating dogs and cats and thinking we'd only be treating dogs and cats, um, now are finding ourselves in the position of treating backyard chickens. Uh, so anything but a human we can treat. In fact, um, we even treat honeybees. Um, so veterinarians are the ones tasked with keeping honeybees healthy um, so they can go out and pollinate and make honey and do all the things that honeybees do. My mind is blown. Uh, immediately, I want to know 
what is the treatment plan for a honeybee? Like what all do you need to do to treat a honeybee? So again, a lot of it's environment. So making sure that that that's all, all okay, but they, there are infections that honeybees can get. And so we can prescribe certain medications um, that are typically given through their food source. Um, so if a hive has an infection to help treat that infection. Um, so that's going to be the biggest thing um, is environmental and infection control. That is fascinating. Uh, for the sake of time, I want to stay within the telehealth realm, but just know that I have a million and one follow-up <laughs> questions for that. Uh, on the topic of telehealth, does telehealth for animals offer the same benefits as it does for humans? In most cases, yes. Um, as far as saving time, decreasing stress, all of those things, it can. Of course, we know probably the most utilized kind of telemedicine in the human space is mental health. So that's not really something we have on the veterinary side. Of course, behavior would be as close as we get, but it's still not the same. Um, so, you know, on the human side, people are checking in with their therapist on whatever time frame they decide to do. And that's really not something we have. Um, but as far as managing chronic diseases, remote patient monitoring, those kinds of things, then yes, it can have the same benefits. And with RPM specifically, would you say that's more common for the rural, the rural communities that you're serving? Or is that something that you see across the board? Well, we see it across the board, but probably the people who are best at the RPM are our food animal um, veterinarians. There's probably no creature that is more monitored than a dairy cow or a chicken. Um, so that's both at the individual level and then, of course, at the housing level. Um, but they have so many parameters that are monitored that if chicken sneezes, somebody knows it and can then determine are we getting an outbreak of a respiratory disease or did the chicken just inhale some dust from the bedding? Um, so tremendous. We are seeing it grow more on the companion animal side, activity trackers, um, going back to the example of a dog that has arthritis, uh, we can institute pain management to keep the dog more comfortable and we can use an activity tracker to, to truly see, yes, it's moving around more, um, those kinds of things and get an idea of how it's doing. Yes, it went on a longer walk. Uh, we can use it for dogs that have allergies and scratch a lot and we institute the appropriate treatment for that. And a lot of these can monitor um, how much they scratch. So if we see their scratching going down, then we can also consider that our treatment is working or make adjustments if it's not. I guess not within RPM, but do you ever make house calls? Like when I think of specifically the backyard chickens, I I don't know how y'all would get them in the office. I mean, I just want to, I just want to paint a picture of what this looks like in execution. Sure. Yeah, no. Um, so lots of veterinarians do make house calls and it could be for a backyard chicken. It could be for a large dog. The owner can't, let's say it's immobile, um, that the owner can't physically get into the car. Um, there are, there are lots of reasons to do house call practices, um, for, for some animals who get really stressed. It may be a more suitable way to go 
or people who have lots of animals, it's easier to to have somebody come and see their five or six or seven animals than it is to to try to bring them in individually as well. Awesome. Thanks for thanks for answering that. That's just mm-hmm. another question that I have in this conversation. Um, so how have you used telehealth in your veterinary practice? I know I should have asked this sooner, but. Oh, no, no, that's all good. Um, so pretty much everything that I have told you about, I, I have used uh, for rechecks, um, for chronic disease management, uh, for remote patient monitoring, done, done all of those. Uh, and it, it really is tremendous when you can put all the pieces together, um, whether it's having a patient come in, um, especially to establish that relationship and get to know each other, uh, when you can do a house call, and, and then when you can do telemedicine to follow up. It really leads to a nice continuity of care and increases the number of touch points between me and that animal owner um, so that we can make sure we're on the same page, catch any potential problems early um, before they get worse, be available to answer questions that they may have, all of those things. Very cool. And you've been implementing telehealth in your practice um, for a while. I'm curious, do you believe that telehealth for animals is on the same level of advancement and usability usability as it is for humans? No, I don't think we've we've caught up to to what humans are doing, but of course, human medicine's probably been doing it for 20 years longer, at least in the context that we think about telemedicine these days. The platforms are more refined on the human side. Um, and of course, there's better integration of medical records all around on the human side. Uh, some of the things, though, that help um, that human medicine is further is that we're also learning some of the things not to do um, or try to set guardrails against. Um, there's a lot of direct-to-consumer telemedicine sites on the human side they really just seem to be there more to sell a medication or to sell a product versus really provide appropriate care. And so we want to make sure we don't fall into that on the veterinary side, um, using telemedicine when it's most appropriate and can provide good care for that patient versus just having somebody come in and, and sell a product because it happens to be what they have gotten a good deal on kind of thing. Um, so those kinds of things, we want to make sure that we're not adding to the fragmentation of care with telemedicine and using it to promote the continuity of care. And so there's lots of things human telemedicine is doing really well. Um, and we're trying to guard against some of the things where it, it may have gotten ahead of itself. Are there any applications of human telemedicine that you would like to see in the veterinarian? industry? I think that there's a lot of advances in the RPM space on the human side, and certainly we're doing it more. Um, And if our production animals, that's very much the case. But I think there's a lot more we could do with that on the veterinary side. And I would like to to see that happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I... I am really enjoying this conversation, and I think that our listeners will too. Um, As we start to wrap up today, I always like to reserve time at the end to ask, is there anything that I didn't cover that you want to mention or expand upon? I think it's really 
Well, I think the most important thing is building a relationship with your veterinarian. And once you have done that in person, then using telemedicine to make sure that you can do the best that you can possibly do um, for your animal's care is, is going to be the most appropriate thing. Yeah. And, you know, as you, as you said that I recall from your bio that you have a monthly radio spot on Houston's Mm -hmm. NPR radio station. First of all, that is so cool. Um, That is so cool. How long have you been doing that? I have been doing that for 11 years. Wow. And how long is the spot typically? It can vary. Um, 10 to 20 minutes is the, the, the usual, uh, and it's great. We'll start each show off with just a seasonal or hot topic. Uh, so I just did it yesterday and we talked about back to school and how changes in schedule can be disruptive for some pet schedules. You know, next month we'll probably talk about preparing for the holidays and the foods that your pet should or should not be partaking in around the holiday time. Uh, and then we take live callers. So every show is different. So people will call in with their pet questions and I do my best to try to answer those and either relieve some anxiety or give them a direction to go into. So interesting. When you said back to school and, you know, preparing for the holidays, once again, not something that I would have on my radar that would impact pets, but isn't that the point of talking about it, right? Because likely there are owners that also would not you know, naturally be considering that. Are there any spots that you've recorded and distributed that have gotten, you know, a significant amount of traction, maybe, you know, episodes that, you know, just got a lot of responses online. I'm just curious to know if there's any topics that have been very impactful for your listeners. The radio station probably has a better idea of the tracking, um, but I know that every month when I'm on, the the clinic gets an increased number of phone calls. So um, I'm assuming there are a fair number of people that are listening. We try to be very timely. So of course, when hurricanes are bearing down, disaster preparedness is a huge one. Uh, Getting a pet as a holiday present and how to navigate that tends to be a big one. Uh, Of course, I'm in a big city, but there's a lot of feral cats Um, So talking about how to manage a feral cat population. So I don't know that there's any one in particular, uh, but they, they all seem to attract their own sort of fan base. That makes sense. And immediately I'm like, I want to know more about feral cats, but um, (laughs) for the sake of time, um, I want to close out today by thanking you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to come on the show and talk to us. This has been so interesting. I hope there's a part two in the future where I'll write down all the many questions that I thought of during this episode and also when reviewing it later. Um, But we just want to thank you again for your work um, and your applications of telehealth and sharing them with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I would be delighted to come back and do a part two. So we can have a chat about that too. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Have a great day. This has been Telehealth Unmuted. 
Be sure to share this episode and subscribe to hear future interviews with leading experts in the field. This podcast was made possible by the Heartland Telehealth Resource Center through grant number U1UTH42530 from the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth, Health Resources and Services Administration and Department of Health and Human Services. <laughs>